everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes, where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, his Content and Ministry Coordinator, are going to answer around 10 questions in this episode, both related to and unrelated to the sermon. As always, if you have any further questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Pastor Nick. Hello, Nick. And um, hi. We're going to get started with the Ask Me Anything follow-up questions from this Sunday's sermon on The Next Good Thing, which we have a lot of questions because um, the sermon was very good, but also very long. So, um, all right, let's dive in on questions related to the sermon. Uh, Nick, can you expand more on the minimizing that happens when we say, quote, I'm not perfect, quote? I'm not saying that. Do you need um, a little more content? No. So, yeah. So I, I just said that like when people say that you should just stop right there because you're minimizing something. And the reason I say that is not because it's like, it's like wrong to say I'm not perfect, but generally speaking, what that sentence means is, um, well, I do technically have faults, right? Like, I'm, I mean, everybody does. Nobody's perfect. And so what it does is it uses the moral freight of the idea that nobody's perfect. So as to insinuate that whatever you're being faulted for at the time falls within the realm of natural human imperfection that should be expected rather than um, human defect that should be corrected. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's human defect that should be expected rather than corrected, right? And so you're like, well, I'm not perfect or I'm not perfect. But essentially what you're saying is, is that I should basically be excused for whatever this is because I'm actually pretty good and yeah, I'm not perfect, but no one's perfect. And this is within the realm of something I shouldn't feel bad about. You shouldn't make me feel bad about and so on. As opposed to rec- if you recognize truly the depth of the defect of a thing, you wouldn't say I'm not perfect. You know what I mean? That's not, it's not the, that's not the, the, the de- demeanor that you would have, you know, you'd have a much more morally serious one than that you know, an earnestness to say, to apologize and to, and to say, I'm really sorry. And, and I'm not perfect. Just isn't conducive to any of those things in its base meaning. Mm -hmm. Theologically, it sounds like from what you're saying that. Yeah. I guess I'm saying it's it's, the saying is defensive by nature. Mm -hmm. By its nature, it's defensive and that's not helpful. Yeah. And I think theologically, you had said, mm -hmm. you had said um, that it's an more of an excuse, Um, and I think it would fall. It seems like it would fall under the realm of what Paul was talking about in Romans, where he he says, like, "Do we keep on sinning so that grace may abound?" Of course not. Like, there's this. Yes, we are free in Christ. Is that in Romans? I think it's in Romans. I mean, it's in Galatians. Anyway. No, I think you're right. I think it's in Romans. Yeah. Okay. Is that, is that, it's like that side of the pendulum that we can be on. Like, 
where I've, I'm not perfect, so like I'm going to mess up. So I, I but but I get a pass. Yeah, and I'm mostly good. So it mm-hmm. assumes that you have high moral standing, right? If if it wasn't, if it was that, if it was just like, look, I can't do anything right. What do you expect? The phrase would be a little different. But when you say I'm not perfect, you're saying basically, I'm I'm really good. I'm I'm probably mm. better than is reasonable to demand from a person. And but yeah, I'm a human being. We live in a complicated world. Where, where I'm likely to have some kind of defect. And yeah, you've touched upon it. So, you know, I'll relatively be sorry for it. And maybe try to change it some. But like, as as opposed to really accepting that a profound defect has come to light. You know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question. So Why let me say is one it- last thing about that? Let me say one yes. last thing about that. Even if I'm totally wrong, socially, you'll get better results not using that phrase. And because that's true, it proves I'm right. Because if you don't say to other people, I'm not perfect, if you say something more morally serious than that, hey, I'm really sorry I did that. No, you know what? You're totally right about that. I should have grown out of, out of that by this point, or I did, wasn't paying attention at all, or you, know, you actually apologize for the real moral defect. You'll be closer to the other person. If you say I'm not perfect, you're holding that person off, not allowing them to come close enough to you to hurt you, and you're rejecting their claim. And so if you stop saying that, you say something else, that is you take the, the objection they've made morally seri- in a morally serious way and accept that it's a defect that you should change and that shouldn't have even been there for this to happen. They'll love you. I mean, they'll, they'll be drawn closer to you. They'll feel like they can trust you. They'll, and it's because of that language and what that language represents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, I won't cut you off. I'm ready for the next one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next question. Why is it easier to flight to sinfulness rather than righteousness when we are weak? Is that an indication of the condition of our heart? Yes. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, when we are seeking to escape, we're going to escape in the more visceral direction rather than the more moral direction, right? So generally speaking, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, it's, it's natural to do what's easier when you engage in flight and the visceral is always easier. It pleases you immediately. It's not morally confused. It's not confused by morality. It's there's a number of reasons why the visceral is easier. It's immediate. You have immediate payoff, things like that. Like eating, just eating something to feel better. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. It's just, if you feel better immediately, it's uncomplicated. It does please you because it pleases your nervous system and so on, as opposed to, like facing and doing the next thing is takes volition and conscience and exertions. Right. And that's, that's precisely what, so when, when we're under the act, acts of worldliness, like when we're, when we're, you know, we're like, oh, I wish I could do what I wanted. That's exhausting because your heart's divided. And when your heart's divided, it just leaks energy. It's like, it's like getting shot through the heart. Like it's like your heart is split in half, but all the blood's just pumping out of it. You're losing all your energy because you're divided. Right. The minute you get, focused at one direction, you have a lot more energy. So that when your heart is divided by worldliness, you feel exhausted. When you feel exhausted, you tend to just do the most visceral thing too. So yeah, in most cases, um, it's going to move towards what the Bible calls the flesh, which is going to be a more viscerally self-centered, simplistic, one-dimensional, materialist kind of direction in our behavior. And that's what you'll naturally find yourself doing, yes. Every so in, in the wording of this question, people, it says... 
Is it easier? Yeah, so the answer is yes to that question. Is it easier to engage in flight to sinfulness? Yes, because normally if we engage in flight, it's going to be to something destructive, which will be in some sense sinful. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it's philosophically necessary. I'm just saying psychologically, that's how human beings tend to behave. Yeah, I. So in this question, it says flight to sinfulness rather than righteousness. So do you think there's even a flight to righteousness? Is that a thing? Because flight would be escape from the good thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So if you use flight in the narrow psychotherapeutic terms that psychologists would, I think flight is by definition evasion. Um, but I mean, even with the concept of flight, because it, it the the idea of of freeze, flight, and fight comes from a earlier version of this, which is fight or flight, which is the human reaction. Now, those human reactions by themselves are not good or evil. Sometimes you have to fight to survive, and fighting's right. And sometimes you need to run, and running's right. So, like when Joseph ran out of the house when Ponfer's wife tried to get him into bed, right? He ran. It was a good run. Mm-hmm. It was a good flight. It was so flight out of righteousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To righteousness. Right. And I, so I think you can fly to righteousness. So like if you're getting pressured by a sin or something that's of the flesh or worldly and something like that, and it's coming in on you and it's maybe using an occasion that's difficult. I think you can take light to God. In fact, I mean, there's some Psalms that literally use that language that I like, I want to fly up to the mountains and be with God. And I, I want to, you know, and, uh, or find my, find my hope in God in the midst of the difficulty. You know, he, he makes a table for me in the, in the presence of my enemies. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I think you can, in some ways, fly to God, take flight to God or to his sanctuary. The problem is, is once you get there and you are restored in God, he's going to send you right back to the situation to handle it. Usually. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. When it says here, when we are weak. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. when you're weak, you're much more likely to flee to sinfulness. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Next question. What do we do when we have no idea what B or the next step is? Is it better to make a hasty bad decision knowing in advance that it's probably bad rather than to do nothing, which is paralysis? And I think this is in reference to one in the sermon you said, it's, it's a, we won't know what A to Z looks like, but just do B. So that's what B right. means here. Yeah. So my response to this is that um, if so, if I'm in a situation in my life and I don't know what the next good thing is, um, that is itself a problem, and that becomes the new Z. Mm. And so now I have to break down like why I don't know, right? So there have been times like trying to grow in in, in emotional sanctification where I've been trying to work through some of my like problems, you know, and I'll get to places and I'll I hit a dead end, and I don't know what to do next, and that becomes the new problem, right? So now I'm looking for things that are going to break open new and new space for me. And that's my next thing. So I'd say if you get, to, if you have a problem and you're like, I don't even know what B is, right? That's your new problem. So now what would you do to figure out what B is, right? Would you talk to wise people? Would you pray about it? Would you journal about it? Would you read scripture until you found something that helped you? Would you ask a pastor for advice? Would you, right? That because, so the next thing then is to find out B. So B become B becomes the new F or G or Z, and then you, you create new next good things 
between you and that thing. And if it's, if it's indecision, if you don't know what to do and you feel like you're headed for paralysis, there are multiple ways to get out of paralysis, right? And you would pursue one of those. Either you would act in a different dimension in something else for now. You, the, and every once in a while that you're in a situation where you have to wait on God. Like, mm-hmm. so, so there's some things in your stewardship that are just, are going to be in a holding pattern. So for example, the raw houses are just telling me that they sold a business and they, I was like, so what's next for you guys? They're like, we don't know. Wait on God for a little bit. Cause you know, we got to let the dust settle and kind of figure out what's going on, see what opportunities are there. So right now, like our vocation is in a holding pattern. Now they're not going to stop doing good. They're going to keep loving their grandkids and their kids. Kent's going to keep doing good on the elder board and in church. Lynn's going to keep praying for people. They're going to keep, you know, going on hikes with their friends. Like all this kind of stuff is going to keep happening. But that area of their life is going to be in a holding pattern for a little bit. It's just you can't leave it there that long, right? If you leave it there indefinitely, then you start getting into paralysis. You got to mm-hmm. do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sometimes it's defined advice. But there, but there is something. If you're like, I don't know what B is, it's not really B. If you don't know what B is, B is really F or G. And there's something closer. And you need to figure out what that is. And oftentimes mm-hmm. it's getting advice. That, that's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's why good. we have and other I, people in the church to talk to, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's an important function. That's why we have friendships, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I was talking to someone after the service and they, they were talking actually about healing. And so this is something you referenced, Nick, with emotional sanctification. And they were saying that like, they don't even know what even the end goal in healing is like, what does it even look like? But just knowing that there's something to be worked on there, there is a next good thing to do. Um, and so you might not have any idea what Z is or even G, but yeah, the next thing in front of you is. Yeah. Sometimes it's just approaching an ideal. So if there's something mm-hmm. that's like emotional health, then you're just approaching it. You know, you get as close mm-hmm. as you can get. You know, Cause every yep. bit, it's not like, it's not like trying to be perfect. Every bit you get closer to the ideal of real emotional health there are true benefits to you and everybody around you. Right. So it's not, it's not like you don't get anything until you get there. You know, you the car, you don't get anything from the car until you've built it and it runs. It's not like that. Every, every 5% more emotional health you've got is usually going to pay off in some way. So every bit is worth pursuing, even if you know, you're never going to get there. You know, this gets into the next question a little bit, and we'll talk more about healing next week in the sermon. But uh, the question is, is how do we move past paralysis when the trauma we have experiences, experienced causes us to question or second guess all of our decisions? How does the body of Christ practically walk with people out of their trauma, helping others become whole? Yeah, Jill, when, you know, when I, as you read that question, as I, as I read it, um, that just strikes me as the perfect question for you, right? I mean, this is, you and I have talked for hours about this over the last four or five years. And um, I just think you've got a lot of really good reflections on it from personally working through it. So why don't you take a shot at answering it first and then maybe I'll add some stuff. Okay, great. Um, Okay. I have a few things on my mind. Um, First, I think that this question gets to this, but the paralysis um, comes because there is a temptation to stay a victim once you've been victimized. So if you've experienced trauma, you are a victim and you've been hurt and those things are legitimate. And um, it's a wound. But um, Nick, in the sermon yesterday, you were talking about Elijah and how there was a point where he shifted from needing care to staying and despairing in in mm-hmm. his victimhood. And that's that's 
will happen even if you're a legitimate victim and you've experienced trauma. And so acknowledging that it's safer to stay a victim in some ways um, because it's familiar. And when you are choosing to come out of your victimhood and fight that, um, you don't really have an excuse anymore <laughs> um, for certain things that have kept you trapped. And it's this weird, it's this weird dynamic because you want to be free from it, but also it's really scary to get free from it. So recognizing that it's easy to stay a victim is necessary. Yeah. Can I make a quick comment on that? So um, I was diagnosed with ADD early on in my college career. And, um, you know, you have to make this choice between wanting to be, wanting to hide behind that label, be like, well, I need these benefits and you need to treat me this way. And I, I need this kind of class and I need these kind of, right. To being like, wait, I actually want to overcome that and forego that label. And that's going to be harder. And, but like, I have to decide, am I going to be better off if I work harder than everybody else? And, or am I going to be better off if I am treated like somebody who needs different treatment? And I, and obviously disabilities are, th some some disabilities you just, you can't, right? But like, I could, I was, I was smart enough and I, and what I needed was a better work ethic because that's what I was going to need the rest of my life. And so I didn't accept any of the help. I just functioned like I didn't have that disability and just like worked harder than everybody else because it's you end up with this kind of like this either or this like like either you you live in the thing or you don't like look anybody who has like who's got an injury like either you go through the physical therapy and you come back into the sport but like listen once you get back on the field after you've like you know broken your tibia or something like those other players are not going to play like you are you know like play less hard because well you had a broken tibia one time like they're like life is going to play just as rough with you as it ever has and so when you decide you don't want to be a victim anymore, you have to get ready to play on the real playing field. You don't get to tie like a red ribbon around your arm and say, you know, I've been hurt. Like, you know what I mean? So you have to say, I'm going to recover from this such that I would need to be as strong or stronger than I ever was. And the good news is, is that that's, that's possible, which I think is, is where you're going with this. Yeah, it is possible. Um, Hebrews 12 has been a really helpful passage for me in working through that. It talks about the discipline the discipline of the Lord um, and how he's training us and strengthening us and that it's painful, um, but that it leads to healing. So you could check out that passage. Um, but yeah, it's rehabilitation. It's doing the physical therapy. You need, you need time for healing from a doctor um, metaphorically, but then also you need to do the work yourself of healing. Um, yeah. let, me, let me say like yeah. two sentences about that um, mm -hmm. in actual physical therapy. Here's what physical therapists always tell me. Nobody does these things at home. They come in. I do the exercises with them. I tell them what to do at home. They go home. They don't do them. That's why people don't get better. Every single person I give these to and they have a discipline to go home and do them, they get better, right? This, you know, the same thing is pretty much true psychologically, except here's the difference. Psychological pain can be harder to deal with than physical pain, depending on the kind of person you are. And I think it's even less common for people to do their psychological therapy to go home and like really do the stuff it takes to get through it. When I talk to people who are stuck in victimhood and they have, they can't heal from their traumas and they're just spinning their wheels. Most of those folks are still in the position, not of denial. They're not denying that they were traumatized, but they're still in the psychological position of avoidance. They don't want to face it. It's just too painful to do the physical therapy. They've accepted the diagnosis. They're like, yes, this thing that damaged me happened to me, but to say, okay, now we do the surgery of recognition, acceptance, lament, but then you have to do the physical therapy of like, 
rehabilitation. And people are so avoidant of that. And I, I've seen it, but listen, if you want to get better, there's a way and it works, it, but it is, it's hard. It's yet it takes discipline and you have to go through pain, you know, and you need a faithful guide. It's painful because it's you're you've experienced a different reality. Like all the, all the lies that you've believed have been true. Like you've seen those things happen. <laughs> so it's, you know, they're a reality and you have to face that and, and act according to the true reality of how God has intended things to be. And so that yeah. is like doing that instead of what you feel all the time. And it's mm-hmm. very hard. Yeah. One psychologist I like says one of the issues with being harmed psychologically is not that you believe something that isn't true, that the world is dangerous and malevolent and horrible and people harm each other. You actually are no longer, you could no longer benefit from the delusion that everybody's nice. You are now forced into the real world. And now you have to become strong enough for the real world. People who haven't suffered some of these kinds of traumas, they think that they're strong and they're the kind of person who lives in the real world, but they really do think people are good to each other. And like, you know what I mean? Cause that's just what they've experienced. They haven't experienced the, the other things. And sometimes when you're, when you've been hurt like that, or even traumatized, it's because you've experienced a wider experience of the world. The world is like, it really is for a lot of people. And so you are in a more real place, right? If you accept the additional reality that you can be healed and you can grow stronger than you ever dreamed. If you ex- experience the reality of the pain and the malevolence of the world, but you reject the truth that you can be healed and grow strong enough for it, then you are stuck in this new reality that has no remedy. And it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I want to say a few things then about kind of how to practically rehabilitate yourself. Um, and so I have three things and two of them again at relation relationships, which is the second part of this question. How does the body of Christ practically walk people out of their trauma, helping others become whole? But first, um, I, a practical way to grow out of trauma is knowing your own mind. And this is something that Nick has told me many times. And we were just talking about this as well before this call, but, um, so what I mean by this is it, it includes multiple things. First of all, in your own pain, you have to be able to say what was wrong that was done to you and how it was wrong morally. Um, and that's really hard to do sometimes because we, an example of this is like if, so one, one of my traumas is abandonment. And so it's easier for me to think, well, what if there's just something wrong with me? Even if I'm not consciously thinking that, it's easier for me to feel like there's something wrong with me than to face that person just didn't love me and they left. And that hurts a lot. Um, but but recognizing it yeah. for what it is, the wrong that was done. So that's knowing your own mind because in those moments you felt hurt and that's a right response and you should trust that response. Yeah. And this would be what what you might call like the surgical era of healing. So like, so if you're healing from trauma, there's like what you might call the surgical, which is like the hurt is in there. It needs to kind of be reopened, cleansed, disinfected, like cared for. And then as that wound heals, right, you still have the pain and the, the deformity of it that you have to then do like a physical therapy for to become strong again. And so what you're talking about right now is, is that that first part, the surgical part was like, you've got to say that this happened. It really did happen. It hurt you. It was wrong. You need to lament about it. You need, right. That's that surgical moment. And then as that begins to resolve itself, you like, you know what it was, you know what it means. 
you've accepted it, right? Then there's the physical therapy of like, okay, wait, now as I go out into other relationships and I'm afraid they're going to abandon me, right? Or that that my that wound is going to re re-manifest itself in a new relationship. Now you've got this perception issue where you're like, dude, does anybody love me? Or is there something wrong with me? Or I mean, I've I believe there's not something wrong with me that I was just abandoned by somebody who should have loved me. But how do I know this person, like your husband, or like how do I know this person's like right? So how how do you then it sounded like you were going to like the now once you get through that surgical portion, you're now you're in the physical therapy portion. So what does knowing your own mind mean in that? Yeah, I um I think it means um well at getting at what you were talking about, Nick. Yeah. It's if re- you have to recognize that it impacts you today. So I mm-hmm. I might um, I might not, I might feel crazy about what has happened to me in the past, but as long as I don't like set that straight, I'm going to be doubting myself all along. And you said that creates a perception gap. And so that's, right. it happens in the present moment and it, in ways that are disconnected from the past, but it will never be disconnected until you cut those ties. Um, and so knowing your own mind in the present, first of all, rec- recognizes that just because some something happened to me in the past, it's not happening. It's not happening to me now, and I can trust what my perceptions now. Yeah, you're kind of like you're figuring in your wound. Like it's like it's almost like your perception in the present is a math equation, and there is a variable for my former experiences and how it's affecting the way I'm feeling about this. And you're you become conscious of that, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to then say, I'm going to trust my perceptions right now about this. Like subtracting that out. <laughs> um, and then, cause I've, I've experienced anger in the present, but thought, well, I just need to fix something in my past so that I feel it's angry now, but no, I was just angry at someone now. And it wasn't, you know, right. it wasn't something from the past. Right. Right. Because when you've been traumatized and your perception is off, you can overvalidate those feelings, but you can also, un- your past feelings coming up, you can overvalidate those. You can also undervalidate your present perceptions that are correct. And so then you get the, like the mousy person who like can't stand up for themselves, can't say what they really think isn't who they really are because they're like, well, my perceptions are so off. I can't possibly believe in any of my perceptions. Right. And you become the empty self where everybody just puts on you whatever they want to. And you just accept it because better to accept what they put on you, knowing that they'll accept you back than to be yourself and risk what will happen in your relationship. Yeah. And another element of this is knowing what. For me, it's looked like knowing what I think and believe. There's been uh, many things where I thought I just didn't have an opinion, mm-hmm. but I realized recently as I've worked through this, I didn't want to have an opinion because I didn't, I didn't trust myself to be to know if I was right or wrong, <laughs> and that was really scary to me because that felt like it would harm relationships or I wouldn't like enter the world in the right way, um, and I was scared right. of feeling crazy again. And so, right, because every opinion is a risk, right? Every opinion is like somebody could evaluate you based on it, or you might have to defend it or like every time you have an opinion, it's a risk. Yeah. And so if you don't, if you're scared of fighting or those things, then then you just don't have opinions because then you don't have those risks. Yeah. But it leads to an empty self. You lose yourself because you won't be yourself. And you don't know yourself. So, um, yeah, I've a one little way I've challenged myself in this, which it's just in politics currently leading up to the election. I've always I've never before really considered which candidate to vote for. I've just kind of done like a default according to what people around me are doing. And this time I'm really trying to challenge myself. What do I really think? Do I agree with that person? Do I agree with that statement? 
um, is almost like just as a test for myself. It's just a practice, but pick something and like try to have an opinion about it. Um, okay. I want to get into some relationship stuff. So, um, the third and fourth thing go closely together, but, um, so for the person, if you've been traumatized, um, you need to open yourself up to relationships. This gets back at, to um, countering the reality that you've experienced. And so you're going to have to initiate and not wait for people to just come to you and find you and sweep you off your feet, even not romantically, just like in friendships. You have to try <laughs> and it's going to be really scary and you're going to feel hurt. Um, but that's a good time to work through like, what was that really me or was that it just didn't work out and that's okay and i'll try again um but then also for others in the church this means that you're going to have to open your lives up to people who are um somewhat dysfunctional and really self-sacrificially love people who aren't easy friends at least in the beginning um and so uh, and that might be someone who you've been friends with for a long time but you haven't gone really deep that could be that that person you just go a little deeper and show a little bit more of yourself and vice versa. Um, and one part, this is the fourth thing I'll say, but one thing that's been really helpful for me in that, um, in practicing that closeness in relationships is confession and forgiveness. Um, I think my approach to relationships because I've been wounded has been to, um, try not to create any conflict or to offend or to, um, put myself up out there too much um but then there hasn't been the step and so um in contrast there's been as my relationships with my current friends and family have gotten deeper um they there's conflict that arises and so my natural tendency to that is to want to flee but instead um as i've tried to in discipline practice confession and forgiveness and people have openly apologize to me. And, um, I've had to like humbly accept that because I didn't expect that to happen. I just, I've just seen relationships slowly fade. And so confession and forgiveness is just a deep well, um, for relationships that makes them go really strong. And it's really scary at first, especially if you've been hurt in relationships, but, um, that makes all the difference. Yeah. Can I say just a thing on that? Yeah. I think that's really important because I think that if you don't, if you're not your full self in a relationship, then people value your relationship functionally, but they can't ever deeply value it in the kind of depth of friendship that makes you want to stick with somebody through thick and thin. Right. Cause you're not, you're, you're not a, you're not a whole person. So you don't have the deep personal intimacy that you would have with a, with a really close friend. And so in trying to like not wreck your relationships, you shallow, you make your relationships artificially shallow and then people just let them go because shallow relationships don't mean that much to them. And when their life gets complicated, those are relationships that go. And so you lose your friends. Whereas being more yourself over time, you might be a little more high maintenance at first, but if you're really growing over time, it'll make your friendships deeper and more meaningful and therefore more stable and long lasting. Yeah. We'll get into more of this in the next sermon on healing. Okay, next question. How important is our attitude while we're doing something good? How do we guard against self-righteousness while we're thinking we're doing something good? Uh, so the answer is yes, your attitude while doing something good is important. Um, it's separate from the thing being good. So like 
So I've heard people say, well, you know, if my attitude can't be good, I'll do it. I just shouldn't do it. Well, no, you should do it and you should change your attitude. So, so if you've got a bad attitude, don't ever let your bad attitude be an excuse to not do the good thing. If the thing is intrinsically good, good in itself, that you should do it even if your attitude's bad. And then you should choose devotion over emotion. And on the foundation of the gospel, give your heart, the primacy of your heart to God in the thing and work to change your emotion, you know? But, um, but the only way to guard against self-righteousness is to guard against self-righteousness, to have a vigilance about the creeping in of self-righteousness and keep believing the gospel that there's no boasting in Christ and that um, if you're doing something good, it's because he's drawn you and brought you into his family and changed you and given you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone and so on so that you're able to do this, you know? So, um, yeah, that section of Romans chapter three, the second half of Romans chapter three is really helpful in that logic. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, so in first Corinthians 13 explicitly says, if you do the greatest things in the world and you don't have love, then you're nothing. So your attitude does matter and the wrong attitude with it, if you're, if it's devoid of love, you, you know, you lose all divine credit for the thing, but it's, you still ought to do it if it's good. Even if your attitude's messed up, just work to change your attitude. And grow in love <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. 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 This is, a, this reminds me of failing in the right direction and just holding multiple things in tension. Like, yes, you have mm-hmm. to gut check your, your motivations, but also, yes, you need to do the right thing and not be paralyzed. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. We've got a few questions unrelated to the sermon. First one. Does church discipline happen at high point? I haven't heard of sin being rebuked publicly. Is that because people are quick to repent? Yes, church discipline happens at high point. Um, Church discipline technically is any time where the authority of the church intervenes in somebody's spiritual life to help correct them and, um, and or keep them from harming the rest of the flock. That's happened dozens of times. In the 10 years I've been a pastor at High Point, um, usually when you get to the point where you would then turn and share what they're doing with the congregation, people leave. Um, and so we haven't usually gone, we haven't gone forward usually with that when people just go. Um, usually if you confront somebody with a sin and they're not going to change, they just leave. Because who confronts mm-hmm. people anymore? I mean, nobody does that. So if you, if you just take that step, you say, listen, um, you can't be like a member at our church and publicly claim to believe in Christ and for us to publicly affirm that you're among the believers and then for you to behave as though you're not one that that can't continue. And then we invite people to repentance. We invite them help. Sometimes we'll pay for them to get counseling if that's necessary. Like I mean, we do a lot to try to help people and, but either people will say, yes, I repent and they want help and they want to change or they don't and they leave. So in that sense, you don't normally see the end result of church discipline because people just don't get that far. So would public in this in what you're talking about be that they're removed from membership? Like would you announce like would you announce it to the church or would yeah. just be public information available like if someone's wondering where this person is? No, I mean the biblical precedent is that if after going to somebody a number of times they are unrepentant, then you like you would rebuke them in front of the church. Like literally mm. with them there. Um but we just usually don't get that opportunity. There are some churches that will read like a list of names if, or like they'll, they'll say, 
you know, the person's name from the pulpit and like why they have been removed from membership. We don't do that usually. I mean, I don't, we can't, I mean, we've never done it during my tenure. Usually people just head for the hills. And so if I know what church they've gone to, I will write that pastor and let them know, you know, yeah, but that's all. Yeah. That's, I imagine that the apostles didn't have to deal with church hopping. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. Not the same. I mean, there weren't, there weren't denominations until the 11th century. So there was a thousand years of straightforward church authority. Okay. Next question. If Amy Barrett is installed on the Supreme court, how does that affect the moral issues at the center of voting? So Amy Coney Barrett is a Notre Dame grad who is on the seventh circuit appointed by Trump. She's kind of a darling of conservative folks who believe in what's called constructivist legal theory, which means that, um, or textualist, I think is what it's called now, which is that texts mean what they meant when they were written. Um, not whatever we want them to mean now. So it's the opposite of the idea of the living constitution that the constitution and its laws are quote, living, breathing documents that change as a quote, great people change, I think is the quotation. And so, um, generally speaking, Republicans and conservatives have appointed textualist judges or something close to that. And, um, progressivist and liberal presidents have appointed, um, purveyors of this idea of the living constitution, the idea that the meaning of the text changes over time as the country evolves. Um, so if Amy Coney Barrett is elected to the Supreme Court or is confirmed to the Supreme Court and becomes a justice, then there'll be six um, presumably conservative justices on the court rather than just five. Um, and so there'll be that's a two-vote majority. Uh, however, Roberts has not been reliable. Judge uh, Justice Roberts, who is a, the chief justice, has not been reliable for the um, conservatives. And he and Elena Kagan have voted together a lot, especially in the last couple of um, sessions of the court. And that seems to be happening more and more so that the decisions are more 7-3 anyway. Um, and so by putting Amy Coney Barrett there, we might start getting some 8-1 decisions with Sotomayor kind of the odd woman out, um, which will be a little weird. So, yeah, I mean, it really will change the makeup of the court unless the Democrats uh, gain the presidency in the Senate. If they do, um, which is probably 50-50 at least, um, there has been talk of packing the court that is increasing the number of Supreme Court justices. Um, however, that's like 70-30 unpopular with the American people. So if if they went to do that, there'd, there'd be a lot of a lot of blowback, I think. So I don't, I don't know that that's – I think that's a far-left – view that is not really going to be mainstream. I think Biden is not answering that question and neither is Harris just to encourage that far less left of their base to vote. I don't actually think that they're going to, it doesn't appear to me that they're going to do it, but, but now I'm becoming a political commentator as opposed to a Christian pastor. Right. So I I think in terms of the moral issues, I I, I still don't even think with, uh, with Coney Barrett on the court that that's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. I I think, I think the court might become more, sympathetic to limitations on abortion. And I think in Roe versus Wade is, I think, an objectively bad decision because it um, it used science from the 1970s that has not held up very well. Um, our prenatal science in the 1970s wasn't very good. And so a bunch of the, quote, current science was put into the decision. And so because of that, as neonatal or prenatal um, 
science has advanced, um, some of the assumptions in Roe versus Wade turn out to be just scientifically false. So, for example, there's a lot of evidence that um, children in the second trimester feel a lot of pain. Um, they're they're relatively viable even in the second trimester, and so on. And so, some of the assumptions that like the second trimester was like a kind of a still an unviable blobby kind of thing, um, those sorts of things seem to seem to not work very well. Those are kind of arguments within Roe versus Wade. So, but even if Roe versus Wade was overturned, that doesn't necessarily mean abortion would be made illegal, right? Um, most states would create a law making abortion illegal really fast and so on. So like who freaking knows is the answer to that question. Um, mm. I, I do think that if you believe in, if you, if you believe abortion is the greatest moral tragedy of America presently, at least, which I think is for a Christian, I don't want to say undoubtedly the case, but I, I think that the, the case is much stronger than anything else I know of in terms of sheer numbers. Cause even if you argue that racism is worse, um, abortion disproportionately targets and affects black people. So it, so abortion still wins that argument, even on the question of race. So I don't know anything that really compares with it. You, you could argue that maybe some foreign policy stuff that could affect large, very large swaths of very, very poor people. Um, so for example, I, what I, I remember uh, I was listening to somebody this week who has four degrees from Stanford who said that more people have starved to death in, in the world because of how we've responded politically to COVID-19 than COVID-19 can or will kill. So we've... Wow. And what we've done to stop COVID-19 from killing people as a disease, we have caused many more people to die from starvation that were just, they were just food vulnerable. Um, our own church has given thousands of dollars through a ministry in India that we're connected with to help get food to people like that. And I think there's some people that lived and didn't die yet because of that work we did, right? But that's just a handful of people though. We're talking about millions of people now dying of starvation because of how we respond to COVID millions. Right. So you could argue that like bad foreign policy and um, disease policy related to COVID caused way more deaths this year, right? Cause abortion is like 840,000 to just over a million, depending on the year. And if our policies around COVID caused like 25 more million people to die who are very poor in the world, I mean, you could say that's a bigger moral disaster, right? You know what I mean? So you could make an argument that abortion isn't the lead issue. I think it's also possible to argue that because abortion is a very is fairly stable in American law, that even though that if you could if you literally had an election where if you elected, let's say, let's say you had a successor Donald Trump let, who was conservative, right? And then you had a liberal Democrat, and you're like, if we get the Republican, we're going to get the end of abortion. And you knew that was the case. I would be very close to saying, in fact, I think I would say you've got to vote for that Republican. Like if you, there was one who could literally deliver that, right? But of course, that's not the case, right? The Republicans are pushing sort of back against abortion some in certain situations sometimes. And then you've got other policies that Democrats are for that could lead to possibly better social changes, maybe decrease the number of abortions and so on, right? There are a lot of liberals make the argument that um, under the Obama years and the Clinton years, because of increased social program spending, more poor parents had had the children that they were um, when they became pregnant, didn't want to. Does that make sense? So in that sense, things could go a lot of different ways. So I think sometimes people struggle with how complex these questions are related mm -hmm. to trying to vote as a Christian. Does that make sense? Um, mm -hmm. And the answer is, again, do the best you can. You know, try to figure out the next good thing or ask somebody you trust. It's okay to, it's okay if somebody else you feel, feel like really reflects on politics well 
to say, hey, who are you going to vote for? And then just do what they do. Most mm-hmm. of what we believe as people, we believe because somebody we trust told us it was true. You know, why not your voting? Yeah. I. So the short answer to the question that I would say, f- from what I heard you say, is that it's unclear how her being installed on the sim- Supreme Court will affect the moral issues because there's so like almost everything is somewhat a moral issue. <laughs> and so it depends on the um, like, according to your conscience, how how what the priority moral issue is. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, th- I think that it might change it in the sense that if Coney Barrett follows a textualist interpretation of the Constitution, the court may stop making decisions that the legislature is really supposed to make. Right. In America, the legislature is supposed to make all these decisions over the course of the last 40 years, because what happened, legislators figured out that if they could get something done through the executive branch or if they could get it done legally, then they could get credit for it. Right. But if it turned out bad, they wouldn't get the blame for it. So if I'm a if I'm a senator and I can get the president to do something or if I can get something done through the courts, I can say, hey, I did that. But if it blows back and turns out to be bad policy, I can say, oh, that was a decision of the courts. That wasn't my, I didn't do that. That's not a law. I didn't pass that law. I didn't sign on to that law, right? So what's happened is the the legislature that's supposed to like argue with itself and, and do bipartisan things and be a deliberative organization, it stopped doing that almost entirely and pushed it into the executive branch and the judicial branch where those decisions don't belong. If Barrett was came on the court and the court began to decide less of those issues for the legislature and push more and more of them back on the legislature and say, listen, the constitution isn't a living document. Our body of laws is a living set of documents because you, the legislature changes it. That's your job. Then we might get real deliberation in Congress, which we haven't had for years. And then we, we could see some really interesting kind of deliberative bipartisan sorts of things. Right. And that would be very interesting. So I think that I think that Coney Barrett, if she follows the, that judicial philosophy, that that could have a good effect on how we vote for legislators, at least. And it could begin to make the presidency less muscular, which I think would be good for people on both sides of the aisle who are afraid of a. See, I've seen Democrats and Republicans say, oh, we're moving, we're lurching towards totalitarianism. Right. Well, then do whatever you can to make the presidency less muscular. Right. I mean, that's the that's a simple answer to that. And um, we can all do that. And and, uh, a textualist court would be good for that. Also, the legislature making laws instead of the presidency advocating for them would also be good. Minimizing the use of executive orders, that kind of stuff. That would all be great. So, yeah, sorry. I like uh, the problem with politics is, is it's like taking learning a little bit about politics is a little bit like taking a year of Greek and then interpreting the Bible. Like. Mm. You know, for the Bible, you have to you have to commit to three years of Greek. If you want, if you really want to use Greek to, to be able that. to interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just dangerous. You think you know stuff, but you don't know what you think, you know, and then you don't know why that's wrong. And that when I when I talk to people about politics, who know, a little bit about politics or just watch the news. They don't actually study policymaking or, you know, have like degrees or take classes in political science and so on. They they are very strong about what they believe and they don't understand very basic ideas let me give you just a quick example of this so a lot of people believe that um if a state or or like a school makes a rule 
that limits the amount of religious expression. And they say, well, it's a First Amendment issue. And people go, wait, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or preventing the free exercise. It says nothing about states. All the states had established religions in the 1770s. Right. Here's why. Because when the 14th Amendment was ratified, the 14th Amendment um, specifically made that thing related to Congress functional to the states in all issues of um, discrimination relative to the states and other bodies. So if you understand, see, see, if you just read the Constitution, you go like, oh, the First Amendment says this. Yeah, except there's like a 250-year judicial history on that, including other amendments, how those amendments affect other amendments. And so the 14th Amendment affects the First Amendment that way. And why would you know that? Why would anybody know that who didn't study political science? And the answer is you don't. And so these things are a lot more complicated. than And look, and I'm, there's lots of people for whom I'm an ignoramus when it comes to poli-sci. Even though I'm interested, I read books on this, I have a minor in political science, and I care. I still, I still don't know enough probably to vote. You know? Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I want to add to that, like that. Don't let that paralyze you, especially in this right. upcoming election. Like, no, like right. find out what you can hold your views with humility and like willingness to change if you find out you're wrong and you don't know enough. But like, yeah. do you know, do the best you can do the next good thing. Yeah. So historically, yeah. some of the most ignorant voters have voted the best in retrospect. You know, like you look at what, like some people, they just like, they listen to a guy, they just don't like him. They vote against him because they don't like what he's like. <laughs> and in retrospect, you're like, that was very smart. Even though like, if you would look at all the policy stuff and the wonky things, you'd be like, well, we should vote for this for blah, 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 blah reason. So I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, go with your gut or ask somebody you trust or. And find best. out more, seek more information, but don't, yeah. don't think you have to reach X amount of information before you can do something right. with that. Right. Yeah. And, I, and Jill, I might actually. I might disagree with that. Okay. I think learning about politics for most people is a horrific waste of time. Unless they're learning about local politics. Those races actually matter. What's going on locally actually matters. But most people want pay attention to the national stuff and they just you might as well just pick a person you trust who's paying attention and then just tell them who you're ask them who you're voting for. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. I did for local politics for a long my first five years here. There was somebody who was really well enmeshed in it. I knew they thought kind of like I did. And I knew that they knew all the people and all the stuff and what they were really like. And I just asked them, I just text them on like election day, who am I voting for? And they just send me the list of people I was voting for. I just voted for those people. And I don't think that's an advocation responsibility at all. I picked a competent person to consult for me and they gladly did. Yeah. I think it depends on who you're asking. Cause like mm -hmm. I would, I would disagree with what you're saying just because right now everything is so Po like polarized mm -hmm. <laughs> um and people are so um there's just so much anger and like ex there's it's very explosive so i think i don't trust um my gut or even just what i see from the candidates because i i want to know more than just my first impression which is based on a lot of media right now and so that's that's where i struggle with what you're but saying why because wouldn't you then why wouldn't you go along with choosing a consultant for yourself like somebody who you don't like you just got to find one no, person yeah. that you think is deliberative that. and then you go who, who am i voting for and they just tell you yeah and that you're done and you don't have to raise your blood pressure or get any right. of that stuff because it frankly doesn't matter like what are you going to do you're one of 350 million people that it's not your job your job is to take care of two children to support the content i'm putting together to serve high point church to love your husband it's not to be conversant in a 
four trillion dollar national budget with all of its foreign policies and blah 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 blah. It's not your job. Who cares? Like, but you have to vote. So, yes, I'm all for asking someone I trust. I think what I'm trying to clarify is don't just go off of what other people are saying you should do. Facebook, absolutely. Yes. Yes. There's a difference between asking someone and going off of what everyone else is doing. And so, right. Yeah. Right. No, I'm not for like reading the tea leaves and like listening to what people quote people are saying. I'm saying use wisdom to pick a wise person and then ask that person what you're doing as a consultant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. I'm not saying scroll your Facebook feed. Do not. Do that. <laughs> um, we're all, we're going to get into more about how to think through politics. I think in the next podcast series after the next good thing. So if you have more questions on that, please send them to us because that would help us shape that series as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Is that podcast at highpointchurch.org? Yes, it is. Okay. okay. Next question. How does a good leader gain trust if the leader acts on data that is not available to the public and thus acts against public opinion? Uh, I only know of two ways to do that. Three ways to do that. The first is you have so much capital with people that they trust you so much that you can just do it and they trust you. The second is that you literally tell them you're seeing things that they're not seeing that you can't tell them about, but that if they saw them too, you think that they would deliberately similarly. So you tell them you're seeing stuff they're not seeing and you, but you don't tell them what it is. Right. Um, and the third is you make another argument for it right so you make Mm -hmm. a rational argument or a social argument or some kind of other argument you try to persuade them a different way you know it's right you know it's right for another reason and so now you argue for it by a different means those are the three ways i know to do it and i've used all of them Mm -hmm. yeah okay church discipline can be like that i have a church discipline play cases where it's not appropriate for me to share all the sordid sins of somebody. Um, but the person is playing as though we're mistreating them, but it's still not appropriate for me to shame that person publicly in that way. And so I end up having to say, listen, you don't know all the facts. You're going to have to decide whether or not to trust me, but I promise you there's a bunch of stuff you don't know. And if you knew it, I really do think that you would do something pretty similar to what we're doing. If not exactly what we're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. But that's why I guard and I, I try to steward my trust with the church so much so that when I see stuff like this and people don't really know, they'll trust me. And then over time it bears out and then I get more trust for it. But in the present, they have to ask, well, am I going to trust him? And the answer is usually sure mm-hmm. because of track record. Track record is always the best if that's what you can use. Mm-hmm. I think that gets to the, at the importance of being open as a leader when you can be like when Mm-hmm. When yes. it's not, you know, and so not Absolutely. always holding your cards super close when you don't have to and not being defensive in that way. Because then when you I do am. have to, do that, there is, there is trust there. There's a, there's trust instead of suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, that you know, as well as anybody, that's, that's my policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it does make me trust you more. So there you go. All right. Um, are there still apostles today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, there are three definitions of apostle that you could possibly use. Apostolos, the Greek term, just means somebody who is sent, right? So historically, the church has used the word apostolos or apostle in three ways. The first is it's most 
absolute sense, which is the eyewitness apostles. They were eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. They were with him the whole time of his earthly ministry. They were witnesses of his death. They were witnesses of his resurrection. They saw his resurrected body and they are, some of them penned the New Testament. Okay. Those are all dead. Okay. The the most generic way to use the word apostle, apostles, is somebody who's sent. So every missionary we've ever sent, anybody you send anywhere to do anything on the authority of the church is an apostolos in that literal sense. And so, yes, obviously there's many, right? I, I think Paul, there's a woman that Paul calls an apostolos. And I think, is it the book of Romans? Is it Junia? I can't remember. But like, yes, Romans when Galatarians, yeah, when, it, when Galatarians argue that um, elders can be women because Paul called Junius a apostle. An apostle is like a higher, like a higher order thing than an elder. And if there's a woman apostle, then there's a, I mean, gosh. Um, the problem is there is that apostle can mean multiple things. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over what apostle means there. Does apostle mean just somebody who's sent? So yeah, I mean, anybody can be sent. I mean, women, men, like it's not an issue of church authority. Does it mean apostolos like witnessed Christ? It probably doesn't mean that, right? So the issue is, does it mean a third thing, right? Um, and so there, sometimes Christians will use the word in a third category, which is something like somebody who starts things. Right. So Paul says in the book of Romans, I've always longed to go someplace to start a new thing for the gospel and not build on somebody else's foundation. That's why I'm going to go to Spain. Right. And so in that sense, an apostolic is somebody who is sent out from an established work to a place where there isn't one. So this would be like a church planter, a cross-cultural missionary to unreached people. Anybody like that is sort of like an, it would be like an entrepreneur for the kingdom. Um, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I mean, as long as you know what you're doing and you don't, you're, you're, you know, cause I think that there was a category for apostolos in the apostolic constitutions, which is second century and all the apostles were dead by then, but you had people who were referred to as apostles. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that idea. I just, you just got to keep them separate that there's somebody you send. That's just what the literal apostolos means. There's like an entrepreneur for the kingdom. You can call those an apostle if you're careful. And then there's the apostolos, the apostles who witnessed the full ministry of Jesus and were eyewitnesses of his death and resurrection and that had the authority to pen the New Testament. And as long as you keep them all them all separate, that's fine. Just don't confuse the the apostolos, the eyewitnesses with entrepreneurs for the kingdom. That's when it gets fishy. Because then you get all kinds of really unhealthy power dynamics because the entrepreneurs for the kingdom start acting like they had the authority of the scripture writing apostles. And then it gets real nasty real fast. So whenever, if you're going to church and somebody calls somebody an apostle, watch and see if they start acting with a level of authority that just seems like out of whack. And if that's there, then they've confused those two definitions and stay away from that. Does that make sense? Yes. That's how how I would lay that out. The third category of like entrepreneur, that's, Mm -hmm. it sounded like from what you were saying that that's not even really in the text other than that we observe what the kinds of things that Paul does, like wanting to go to Spain and he is an apostle. And so someone who would do something similar to starting something new would be like Paul in that way. Is that what you're saying? So it's more of an association, something from the text. What sort of, but like, um, a Silas is called an apostolos at one point. I'd have to go and check this out textually exactly, but I want to say that there's like three or four or five other people in the new Testament where the word apostolos is used. 
and they're not among the eyewitnesses as far as we can tell. Okay. So it seems like it seems like there was a leadership, there was a leadership position that was entrepreneurial in its function and that was itinerant in its nature. Right? So it's a position, it has authority, and it is entrepreneurial like in it, but it is fundamentally itinerant by nature. So it's not it's not an elder who stays in one place. Mm-hmm. So I want to say Timothy gets referred to that, but I know I know Silas gets referred to as that. And there's no evidence Silas Silas was privy to any of the ministry of Jesus at all, as far as I can tell. Okay. You know, so right. apostolic. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. Okay. Second to last question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is keeping a living space clean a sin issue, meaning to clean up after oneself, or is this an issue of values and preferences? Um, if you live alone and your the way you keep your place is of no effect to anybody but you, then I don't see how that would be a sin issue unless you were so filthy that it affected your physical health and it affected you not treating your body as a temple of the spirit and not stewarding your health well, right? Other than that, I think it'd be a question of stewarding your space and your belongings. So like if you were ruining your belongings by leaving them out and not doing maintenance on them and so on, and so you're not actually being a good steward, steward over your over your belongings. I think I think that could be an issue, cognizant to sin. I think if also if it made it so that you were a bad host or showed poor hospitality to others, I think you could be approaching the area of sin. I, I also think that if you live with other people, this becomes an issue because now it's an issue of love. And so um, if you just know it drives people crazy that you just leave all your crap everywhere. And it, you, it, this again, this is an issue of preferences to the extent to which, like, how clean is clean? I mean, that really is a somewhat relative issue, right? If it, you're so dirty that there are health issues involved, that's objectively too dirty. If literally you can't stand anything to ever be out of place, even for a moment, not everybody's obligated to live that way. Does that make sense? So there is some relativity to it, but um, you should be able to discern whether your amount of messiness, if that's what is the case here, um, is interfering with the ministries of your life and making it so your other stewardships are not functioning properly. Does that make sense? But I don't, I don't think I'd frame it as a quote sin issue. It may be evidence of a disordered life and an undisciplined life. Um, and that would be something worth facing, but I would, I, I would just say this. I don't, I don't think I would look at it as a, I don't, I'm not saying it's not sin. I'm just saying, I'm not sure that's the best way to look at it. I think you should look look at the question of why are you so messy, right? Um, and what's going on with that? And why do you feel like that's okay? And does it really hurt anybody else? And maybe it's no big deal at all. And who cares? Maybe God wants you to focus on other things and it doesn't matter. Or maybe you could love your neighbor better if you, or maybe what you need is to mature to start with ordering your personal private life and that will help you begin to live ordered and in a disciplined way in the rest of your life. And maybe the ordering of your personal and private space is a step you need to take, you know? So, so I don't, I, I wouldn't, if, if you, if I was talking with this person, like in my office, I'd be like, let's get it out of this context of, is it sin? And get it into the area of what is my stewardship and how does this affect mm-hmm. me? What does this mean for my development? The kind of person I am and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More of what's really going on underneath yeah. this surface yeah. evidence or phenomenon. Your yeah. curiosity. Why am I like mm-hmm. this? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, final question. Please speak to the concept of insecurity versus legit following Jesus. I have to admit, I don't really know where to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. I th- I'm wondering if that skits. Okay. I mean, I have experienced insecurity a lot before. So I'm wondering if, based on your sermon, if this is getting at like the will of God. So how do you know if you're just being insecure in something or if you're following the will yeah. of God and all those questions you need to ask yourself, is that insecurity or how do you know if you're following Jesus and asking those questions in that like self check of like, is this God's will? Um, so, so one question would be like, if someone's really concerned about s- sin, like they might think I can't do that. Cause what if it's sin or what if I sin or what if I do something wrong? I mean, that seems really godly and like, Oh, they really want to follow Jesus, but it can also be a paralysis out of insecurity. Mm-hmm. That's what I would yeah. say the question is asking. Yeah. I mean, I, I have some sympathy for that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have like a formula for that. I, I think that that's one of the reasons why we need to be careful about things like legalism. You know, insecurity hides really well in legalism. Um. Whether if you're if you're not being legalistic and you're really trying to grapple with the doctrines of grace, then it's hard to hide your insecurity. It'll actually bring out your insecurities. Um, I think dealing with obeying Jesus, you know, obeying Jesus in the hard places of your life where you want to freeze or flee or fight, um, that's going to bring up your insecurities. You know, I think here's one thing I, was, I will say: if you follow Jesus, your insecurities are going to come out and you will be humiliated by them. If you're following Jesus for very long and you're not getting humiliated by your stupid insecurities coming up, then you are doing it in a way where you're not letting him at your insecurities, which is not good. You know what I mean? So in that sense, I think if you're legit following Jesus, you're going to end up facing your insecurities and it's going to hurt. And it's going to be humiliating. And if you're not doing that, then you are following Jesus in a way to cover up and avoid facing your insecurities, which probably means you're engaging in some kind of religious rigidity. Um, or some other phenomenon related to that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a difference too in that between the the rightful shame of humiliation when you expose your insecurity mm-hmm. and the shame that you will feel that is not really yours to bear if you're keeping it inside. Like the shame of, well, what if I did that wrong? It's like it's not actually something that's wrong to do. Or it's yeah. what people will think, or whatever it is that swirling spiral of terrible thoughts <laughs> that is keeping you locked in your insecurity that feels humiliating, but it's not actually humiliating because it's not um, confronting your insecurity. Mm-hmm. So they both feel terrible in different ways. One is productive and one is not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we got through it. That was a lot of questions. That's it. Yeah, I want to encourage people who are listening to. Uh, I'm going to try to. I mean, I just. It's so hard for me to preach 25 minutes. I, I, I just apologize. I want to apologize publicly to everybody. I, I just have a really hard time thinking in 25 minute teachings. It's so hard for me to do that. It just feels like I'm not giving people enough for the culture we're living in, and we're not really getting it to the the inner workings of things and why our lives are the way they are. And I just feel like my talent, that the gift God has given me, is to like break things down for people. It just mm-hmm. takes a while to do it, you know? So 
I'm working on that. However, I do want to encourage you like to encourage like non-Christians and people to come to church and watch online and to ask questions, especially antagonistic ones. Um, I'd love to answer the questions of people who are, who really are struggling and really want to know mm-hmm. the truth, you know, as best as we can conceptualize it and explain it right now. So, anyway. so yeah, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Hope this is helpful. That's yeah. it for me. All right. Thanks, Nick. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.